now, in the last 10 years, I've got to say, but you've got to open your mouth. You've got to explain why you're doing it. You've got to, you have to tell people in whose name you're doing it. Because just like Jesus, Christians are supposed to be mighty in word and deed. And the fact of the matter is, and I'm, I'm giving us credit here, there are headwinds uh, that we have now that if you wanted to open your mouth and share your faith and talk to people around you about your faith and Christianity, that uh, 40 years ago just weren't there. They just weren't there. In fact, I'd like to talk this first half of my, my, my discussion here. Uh, I'd like to talk about four headwinds that we have, and it's making it very hard, and especially uh, the younger you are, the more likely you feel these headwinds with the people around you. The younger you are, the more you feel these headwinds. First of all, there's the problem of attention. It's hard to get people's attention to even uh, care to talk about Christianity. It's not just that more and more people think Christianity is irrelevant. Yes, of course that's true. So they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to listen. But it's more than that. Uh, there's a good book by Alan Noble called Disruptive Witness, and he talks about the fact that in, a, in an internet culture, in a social media-dominated culture, uh, and some of us are more shaped by it than others. Those of us who are older are less shaped by it because it has, been a, uh, has not been as big a part of our uh, life proportionally. But what social media does is it makes you distracted, that you never pay a whole lot of attention over a, in a sustained way to much of anything. Now, as a result of that, you never change deeply. Uh, if you're constantly going from thing to thing to thing, which is what it means to be on social media, you're going to thing to thing to thing to thing like this, you, you zip from one thing to another thing to another thing, and you might make changes, but they're superficial changes. Because the only way you change deeply is if you pay an awful lot of attention over a long period of time to something. You have to give yourself to it. You have to, you have to reflect on it. You have to take it inside. You have to, you have to uh, pay attention over a long period of time. That's the only way you change in any direction at all. And virtually nobody does that anymore. And the younger you are, the less you're able to do it. So it's very hard to get people's attention. How do we even talk, how do we get people's attention to talk about Christ? Number two, um, there's the problem of comprehension. And the reason is, and this is a incredibly um, uh, over-general, you know, uh, actually, when it comes to talking about culture, unless you over-generalize, you're going to be boring. And I don't want to be boring tonight, so I over-generalize that up until this culture, every other culture, you found truth outside of yourself, and you went outside to find truth. Your truth was God, or family, or the nation, or something like that. But in our culture, you find truth by going deep inside yourself. You find truth inside. That's where you find truth. And only you can decide who you are, and only you have the right to tell, uh, to, to determine for yourself what is right or wrong. Nobody has the right to tell you what is right or wrong. And so truth and, and right and wrong are things you discover on the inside. Now, that's the, this is the first culture in history like that. Every other culture, different religions, of course, they, they differed on what the truth was. The Hindu culture, the Muslim culture, the Buddhist culture, the animist culture. They, they, all, they differed on what that truth was outside. But they all agreed that there was a truth on the outside, which meant you could fall short of it. You could... Therefore, you're, therefore, you were a sinner. 
You never lived up to the, to the moral standard. What happens in a culture that's dedicated to the idea that nobody can make you feel guilty, you decide what is right or wrong for you, nobody can impose their values on you, you have to live your own truth. Is that a culture in which people actually have the idea of sin? Not exactly. So in every other culture, when you did evangelism, when you talked to a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or anybody about uh, the gospel, you could assume that they knew that there was a truth outside of themselves and they fell short of it in some way and therefore you could work on that. There was a space there. You know you're a sinner. You know that you haven't lived like you should. Here's what Christianity is to say to you. But that, this is the first culture in which that's not there. There's an awful lot of a typical gospel presentation that is completely incomprehensible. Not just, obviously if I tell a gospel presentation to a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, they may say, you're wrong. In fact, they may say, you're really wrong. But they understand what you're saying. They have a different understanding of the sacred order. They have a different understanding of how to connect to the sacred order, which is a truth outside of yourself, a moral absolute transcendent norm of some kind. But what you have in our culture is people have no concept of that. So how do you even do your normal gospel presentation? You know, when I was uh, in, in the 1970s, uh, when I was in uh, Virginia, I could go to any place in, the, in, in my little town, uh, whether the person has believed in God or not, or went to, Christian, went to uh, church or not. I could say, hey, when you die, you want to be all right, don't you? You want to know that when you die, you're, you're, you're going to go to heaven. And everybody would nod. Uh, and you know you're supposed to be a good person, right? Everybody would nod. But you know you're not as good as you ought to be. Everybody would nod. Well, I got something to say to you. And they either accepted or rejected it. But basically, they, 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 it was comprehensible. But none of those first three or four questions in a place like New York, usually you're not going to get a nod, are you? So it's not comprehensive. So it's the problem of attention, the problem of uh, comprehension. Then there's the problem of attraction. Now, people are not going to sit still and listen to a presentation on why Christianity is true unless they have some sense that it wouldn't be so bad if it was true. Well, what if, what if they're absolutely, a, not only, what, what if they are utterly offended by Christianity, the very idea of it? And increasingly, there's people like that. I'll tell you why, real quick. We are, in some ways, becoming like the early church in this way. The early Christians were the most persecuted and the most, uh, the, the most vilified of all the various religions. And the reason was this, that everybody had their own gods. So if you, if you uh, were from the city of Parthia, you, uh, there was the Parthian gods. If you were from the city of Scythia, there were the Scythian gods. There was the, you know, the, every, every town, uh, every guild, if you were a leather worker, there were leather worker gods. If you were a... Uh, very often, if you had a family, a large estate, there were always, always household gods. And you can have your gods, that's fine. But when you came to my town, when you came to my house, you had to pay tribute. You had to light a candle. You had to show obeisance of some kind. And that was just the only, that's how you did it. That's how you showed respect to that town or to that house or to those people. Christians were the first ones to come along. The Jews, of course, did not worship other gods, but at least... The uh, Romans and Greeks looked at the Jews as very strange people, but at least they were a racial group, and they said, well, they've got their God, we've got our God, we've got this God. They're kind of narrow-minded, but here they are. And Christians came along, 
and they be, there were Greek Christians and Roman Christians and Scythian and Parthian. <laughs> the Christians came from all these different groups, but then they said, "We cannot, we cannot bow down to idols." And therefore, Christians in that time were not just weird, though they were; they were dangerous because they were a threat to the social order. They were incredibly offensive because they would not honor all the deities. And of course, the Romans thought they were being more open-minded and the Christians were being close-minded. What they were actually telling the Christians is, you have got to honor the reality of every deity. And the Christians are saying, we can't. What you're really saying is, we can't be Christians. You're being intolerant. But here's the interesting thing. They were seen as a danger to the social order. They showed disrespect to people. And they were afraid, of course. You see, take a look at Acts 19. The fear is that Christians would stop worshiping the gods in the, you know, the temple of Diana in, in Ephesus, and, and the gods would get angry. They were, they were really considered a danger. But here's what Christians had to do. They had to say, you watch us. You say we will not, we're not good citizens. You would say we're not good neighbors, but we do love you. And we will be the best neighbors, but we cannot bow the knee to the reality of these other deities. They, we don't believe in them. Now today, we're in a similar situation. Right? You see how? Charles Taylor, the great philosopher, says that modern people believe the sacred is inside you. We may not believe in a God out there, but we believe there's something sacred inside you. You have depths inside you. So going in and discovering your identity is a religious thing. It's a sacred thing, and nobody can question it. And nobody in any way can question it. Well, of course, if... Uh, we're the first, as I just said a minute ago, we're the first culture in which identity is deified. It's unquestioned. It's not allowed to be questioned in any way because there isn't any standard outside of the self to judge it. There's no truth out here. It's all in here. And so if you as a Christian disagree with a person about any of their beliefs that they think are part of their identity, then you are the bigot. You are a danger to the social order. And Christians are in the same spot we have to say, no, we, you are being intolerant, actually. You're telling us we actually have to agree with your beliefs about identity, and we don't believe that about identity. There's never been a culture that believes what we believe here about identity. We don't believe it, but we do love you. We will love you. We can be good citizens. We can be the best neighbors you watch. Now, of course, there's a lot of persecution then. Maybe there'll be persecution now. I don't know. But you see why Christianity is not seen as a very attractive thing. Because there is a, there's, if there is a baseline belief in our culture, it's that identity is deity. And therefore, if you question anybody's beliefs about who they are at all, uh, then you're, you're questioning, you know, in a way, you're doing the very same thing. You're showing disrespect the way the early Christians showed disrespect to the gods. Yeah, Christians have to say, look, sorry, you're the ones being exclusive, but all we're going to do is we're going to say, no matter what you do, we're going to love you, we're going to be the good citizens, we're going to show you. Nevertheless, it's a hard sell. There's one more thing to say, quick. Uh, there's the problem of the, uh, as I said, there's the problem of the of attention, there's the problem of comprehension, there's the problem of attraction, there's also a problem, uh, the problem of attraction means how do you attract people to an offensive thing like Christianity now? And the last thing is the problem of the spectrum. What I mean by that is that there's really not just one. I wish everybody out there just hated Christianity, but it's not that simple. 
you've got all kinds of people. I talked some years ago, especially in New York, I talked some years ago to a man who was, uh, lived in London, and he said that when he, he was a minister, he says, when I come out my door, to the left on my block are mainly Muslims and, and Hindus, people from the South, you know, the South Asian continent, the continent. Uh, mainly Hindus and Muslims. And to the north are mainly white people, white English people. And he says, the people to my left think Christianity is too morally lax. It's not morally strong enough. You know, it's, and the people to my right think that Christian, Christianity is too moralistic. You know, it's, it's too down on people. It's always talking about sin. The people over here are saying Christians are just too loose. They're not morally strong enough. And the man said to me, can you give me a gospel presentation, you know, you know, an outline of the gospel that I can give to everybody on my block? And I said, no. <laughs> no way. Because these are people in radically different places. Their understanding of truth is different. Their understanding of identity is different. Their understanding of reality is different. It's all different. And now we live in, especially in places like New York, we live in pluralistic societies, and you have no idea who you're going to be reaching out to and talking to. They could be from pla different planets when it comes to worldview. You put all that together, we have headwinds. But I'll just say this. These are the headwinds. Uh, and I'll be quick because I know I've spoken on this in the past, not too long ago. Uh, John Stott wrote a little book some years ago. And I read it as a brand new Christian, and I never really forgot it. He says, when it comes, it was about evangelism, it was about sharing your faith. And he said, when it comes down to it, um, if your heart has been affected by the gospel, you'll find a way. Headwinds are no headwinds. Is it, in the end, he says, it's not whether you've been trained, it's not whether you have the right answers to all the hard questions you're going to get. It's, it's a question of the heart. And he said, if, you, if the gospel has really affected the heart, it, it means it will affect it in four ways. Number one, the gospel gets rid of pride. Tells you you're just a, a sinner. And that gets rid of the idea that you have all the answers and you're superior to the person you're talking to, which makes you a terrible, terrible witness to the faith. So it gets rid of your pride, which is one of the, and harshness and abrasiveness and argumentativeness. Gets rid of that. It should. And that's one of the main reasons that we're actually pretty ineffective when it comes to talking about our faith. Number two, the gospel should get rid of your fear. Of course you should be afraid of offending, unnecessarily afraid of hurting people. Of course you should. But that's not really what we're afraid of. We're afraid of being thought of a religious fanatic. We're afraid it's gonna hurt our job. We're afraid it's gonna hurt our network. Isn't that right? And see, the gospel says you are loved in Christ God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God, meaning God looks at us and he sees us as absolutely beautiful. And our self-image should be based on the fact that the only eyes in the universe whose opinion counts sees you as an absolute beauty. And we're scared by what other people say because frankly, the gospel hasn't something deep enough to really change our identity to a great degree we take our, our self-worth and our self-regard from what people think of us. The gospel should get rid of fear. It should get rid of pride. It should get rid of pessimism. If you look at somebody around you and say, that's not, that person, that's not the kind of person who would ever become a Christian. 
Oh, and you are. How wonderful of you. You were such, such promising material. How wonderful of you to come to God and let him do something with you. Uh, uh, there's this little verse in Romans 3 that says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Every person who becomes a Christian is a miracle. You're a miracle. And if you're pessimistic about anybody, you've forgotten what a miracle of grace you are. Yeah. And number four, lastly, the gospel should give you enough joy and love that you really say, boy, <coughs> sticking my neck out like this, it's, it could be terrible. I'm shy. I don't like upsetting people. But it is just unloving for me to never open my mouth. And so John Stott concludes his little talk with a pretty convicting statement the way he often did. He uh, basically talks about the fact, he says, oh, he says, nothing closes the mouth like the poverty, the secret poverty of our spirit, the secret poverty of our spiritual life, this, the fact that the gospel is not really animating us. If the gospel is animating us, if it really changed our heart in those ways, taking those things away, uh, giving us a gospel humility, giving us a gospel fearlessness, giving us a gospel love, giving us a gospel hope, we'll find a way. Headwinds or no headwinds, we'll find a way. So let's stop right here. Who's coming up next, by the way? Because is Kelly coming up? Because um, I think we're doing a brief Q&A, right? Okay. So we're going to do a Q&A. We're going to, after that, take a break. I'm going to come back and give you more practical questions. Your motivation is actually to love people. The, uh, talking about your faith, this may sound strange. Talking about your faith is really a means to an end. And what's the end? Loving them. Well, if you don't love them in order to share your faith, you share your faith in order to love them. Those are two very different motivational structures to the heart. If you're loving them in order to share your faith, in some ways, then you have objectified them. Uh, they're, they're objects, not subjects. They are, uh, they're people that you want to feel good about yourself because, hey, I'm sharing my faith. You don't love people to share your faith with them. You share your faith with them if you get the opportunity because you love them. And so what you want to do is you want to deepen relationships in one area. And the only way people are going to pay attention is number one, they have a relationship with somebody who is a believer. And then number two, the moments come. Now, what do I mean by the moments? Uh, a lot of you are saying, how do you get into conversations? I, I'm a little more passive, maybe, than I should be, but I wait for moments, and there's three kinds of moments once you have the relationship. The one moment, I'll tell you, here's the easiest one, is when you see an article or something that you've read online or in the paper or something like that, and you, you say it raises questions that aren't necessarily directly um, about Christianity or about even religion, but they raise some pretty interesting questions. They kind of get you talking beyond just the, hey, what do you think of how the Yankees have done that sort of thing. You're trying, to get, you're trying to get people to start talking about life issues and how do you, what is the meaning of life and how do you make moral judgments and how do you, how do you, you know, what are the important things for us to be doing? One of the things to do is just to see something like that. Um, especially when you know it's going to be uh, a kind of interesting, just to give you an interesting article, um, there was a, uh, an article uh, a while ago 
in the New York Times called Has Trump Stolen Philosophy's Critical Tools? And it's written by a, a guy who at the time was a PhD student in English, maybe still is, an English PhD student, in, because uh, <laughs> it's two years ago, and we all know how the doctors go, uh, at Duke. And what he says here in the article, he says this, he says, um, for decades, critical social scientists and humanists have chipped away at the idea of truth. We've deconstructed facts, insisted that knowledge is situated, and denied the existence of objectivity. The bedrock claim of critical philosophy, going back to Kant, is simple. We can never have certain knowledge about the world in its entirety. And now these, these ideas animate the work of influential thinkers like Nietzsche, Foucault, Derrida, and they've become axiomatic for scholars in literary studies, anthropology, sociology. And from these premises, philosophers and theorists have derived a number of related insights, including this. All facts are socially constructed. People who produce facts, scientists, reporters, witnesses, so on, they do it from a particular social position, and that influences how they perceive and interpret the world, and therefore all facts are socially constructed. Uh, we create them because they, they suit us. And he says, call it what you want, relativism, constructivism, deconstruction, postmodernism, critique. The idea is the same. Truth is not found, but it's created. And making truth always means exercising power. Then he points out that this is what Donald Trump is doing. And he doesn't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump says, oh, well, you have your facts, but I have my alternative facts. And he says, wait a minute. That's what we were told to do in the, in the PhD program at, at Duke. That when somebody came along and made truth claims, you say, ah, oh, all truth claims are not. Okay. He says entire PhD programs are still running to make sure that good American kids are learning the hard way that facts are made up. That there's no, that there's no such thing as natural, unmediated, unbiased access to truth. That we're all prisoners of language. That we always speak from a particular standpoint. He says, well, what do you say when Trump is actually doing that? And here's what he says. It's at the very end. Listen to this. He says, well, here's the only thing you can say. He says, we need to recognize, though, that while all facts might be created and constructed, not all facts are created equal. Some facts are better than others. <laughs> now, okay. And he says, um, now here's the question. How would you know? if some facts were better than others, unless there was an uncreated standard by which you're judging which facts are better than others. So what he's actually trying to say is, my own worldview doesn't work for me. Now, if you ask somebody else to read that, and you just talk with them about it, you don't have to be talking about Christianity by any means, but you can actually say, isn't that interesting? He's trying to say, he says, well, you know, I think all facts are just created. I don't believe there is such a thing as absolute truth out there, but now I don't know what to do about this guy who I don't like. And therefore, I have decided that there must be some uncreated standards of truth, which is what I just said didn't exist. <laughs> so talk about that. I don't know what your friend would say about that. It's interesting. There's tons of these kinds of articles. They happen all the time. Do you have your antenna up? Ask them to read it. We're, this is not getting right into Christianity at all. It doesn't need a close up. But who knows? That's, so number one, moments, one moment is when you have a great article. Number two like is when people see a story that would be great if it was true, but it's only fiction. See, uh, 
J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a wonderful, wonderful article, uh, not article, essay, a lecture years ago called On Fairy Stories. And he said, why is it that people love fairy tales? And he said, because deep in the human heart, we have a massively deep desire for several things. We, we're fascinated by all stories in which somebody escapes time. Or when they escape death. Or when they commune with non-human beings. Or when they um, experience, they, they cheat death and they experience love without parting. Or when good really triumphs over evil. So, say, in fairy tales, this is not how things actually happen in the real world. And yet, fairy tales, all these things are happening, and that's why we're so passionate for them. There are certain stories that just move us, even though they're not really true. Except what J.R.R. Tolkien points out, J.R.R. Tolkien points out, is if the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened, every one of those things will literally be true. You will escape time, you will escape death, you will know love without parting, you will commune with non-human beings. They call themselves angels, but we can call them elves if you want. <laughs> <laughs> you will see good triumph over evil. And there are places when someone's really moved by a story, which, as being Christian terms, will literally come true. But in non-Christian secular terms, it's, not, it's just something you can pine for and then say it's just, it's all, you know, it's, it's all, basically it's rubbish. It makes us, we would love it, but it's just not true. Is there a place to talk about that when, you, when people are, are reading, watching those, those stories? Yes, there is. There's a place to talk about that. The last thing is this, and that is everybody's worldview, if it's not a Christian worldview, is like, and by the way, some of us at my age certainly understand what I'm talking about here. If you're wearing a set of clothes that's too small for you, because you have gotten too big, right? <laughs> then when you move and it's too small for you, it either pinches or it rips. <laughs> Everybody who's not a Christian has a worldview that actually doesn't fit reality. Uh, they have meanings in life. You know, my meaning in life is to get into a good school and be a doctor and really help people. Uh, but then what happens if you get injured and you can't become a doctor or whatever, or you can't practice medicine or whatever? In other words, everybody has a meaning in life that can't handle suffering. Or has a real strong moral sense, but doesn't really have, to back to what that poor guy has Trump stolen philosophy's tool, tools, has a strong moral sense, but doesn't have a worldview to back it up doesn't have the moral sources for his moral ideals. And what it means to, what it means to share your faith with people is to, is to be near them and to, get, and to like them and to love them and to have them like you and trust you and be around for when there's times for articles like that, stories like that, or when suffering comes into their life and they find their worldview actually pinches or rips. So be patient and love them. Uh, here's the last thing I'll just say about the gospel itself. You say, well, what, how do I share the gospel? Well, I've actually talked to several of you already tonight about this. The, there, there's, uh, there are so many different ways to do gospel presentation. And yet, and I talked talk to you, there's, you're not going to have a gospel presentation that works for Hindus and Muslims and you know, secular white people. No. 
And yet, in the end, um, everybody is trying to save themselves. They, they don't call it that. Some people are going to church and hoping by living a good life that God will take them to heaven. Okay, that's, they, they, they are saving themselves. Other people are just throwing themselves into their career or, or romantic love or whatever. Everybody's trying to save themselves. And at some point, everybody will see they can't save themselves. And every other religion, every other philosophy says the way, uh, once you fail to, to save yourself, and they, they say, here's a, we'll try another way to do it. Another way to save yourself. Get, the, get your life together. You know, go into therapy. Learn meditation. Do all these things and you can get your life together. And Christianity comes along and says, no, you never will be able to. You might do okay for a while, but you'll crash again. But Jesus Christ is the one founder of all the world religions who doesn't say, I'm a prophet, come to show you how you can climb up to God. No, Jesus is the only founder of any major religion that says, I am God, having come down to save you. And the idea of salvation by grace, that's it. That's the heart of it. That's what you have to get across. You know, when... Uh, uh, I mean, it's all believers and all that sort of thing, but, uh, uh, you know, Nathan Coles, when he was converted by listening to a George Whitfield sermon in a field in Connecticut in the 1730s, he's got this very famous place where he, he, he's, he wrote a, uh, it's a, it's an interesting historical record, but in, in his uh, autobiography, he talks about it, and he says this, he says, my hearing him sin gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Now see, he's using traditional biblical language um, because he was listening to George Whitfield preach. But basically, every person who grasps the gospel has to say, I've been living and making this into my salvation and it won't save me. I can't save myself this way. In fact, I'm failing and I'm just feeling cursed in myself. But there is a way for, there's a, I believe in Jesus Christ who took the curse for me so that I can be received by grace. That's the essence. That's the essence of everything you're going to do. I, I, uh, this is what you're trying to get across. Yeah, they're going to ask you questions about the Trinity. Yeah, they're going to ask you questions about hell. Go to your church and figure out ways of being able to talk about those things. But the essence of the essence of the essence is salvation is of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. Salvation is not from you. It's not, it's not partly you and partly God. Salvation is from the Lord. It's all from Him. The great, one of the great witnesses in history was the woman at the well that Jesus met in John chapter 4. And at the very end of John chapter 4, after He says to her, Woman, would you give me some water to drink? And she says, uh, He says, I, uh, you know, and He gets a drink of water. He says, I have water that if you drink it, he would never thirst again. She says, give me that water. Then he immediately says, go bring your husband. Interesting <coughs> juxtaposition. Uh, he's obviously talking about spiritual, eternal life. The water he has is the, is the water of eternal life. Ultimate satisfaction. Ultimate thirst assuaging. Ultimate joy. 
That's what I got. She doesn't understand that. He said, well, give me this, this water that if I drink it, I'll never thirst again. He says, well, go get your husband. He says, I don't have a husband. No, he says, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Why does he say that? That's kind of harsh. No. He's trying to say, you've been looking for the water of life. You've been looking for joy and satisfaction. You've been looking for a love that would heal you and stop and finally make you feel like, finally I'm okay. Finally life is all right. You've been looking for it. And you've been finding it in men. And I've seen all that you've done. And then he explains who he is. And then he, she understands the water of life. And so she runs into town. And... Um, and uh, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she kept saying. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. Because of the words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Now, maybe you don't feel that you are equipped to talk to your friends about Christianity. How equipped was she? Did she do any training programs? No. And look at what she said. Can you see a man who told me everything I've ever done? What's that? You know what she's saying? She's saying, he saw me to the bottom, and he still loved me. He saw everything about me, and he still offered me the water of life. He didn't say, well, my dear woman, that's a, that's a pretty bad record. <laughs> and if you want the water of life, I'll tell you what, if you could just straighten up and fly right and keep your nose clean for a couple of months, I'll come back and we can have another meeting, and maybe then you'll be ready for the water of life. Now, come see a man. That's gospel. That, that's, that's sharing the faith. Look at this man. And you know why he was able to give her the water of life freely without asking her to jump through a million hoops? Because on the cross he said, I thirst. So he got the thirst that we deserve. He got the separation from the Father that we deserve so that he could offer us the, the water of life freely. And she... She didn't understand that, but she understood grace. She understood that here's a man that looked, saw me to the bottom, and loved me to the skies. Come look at this man. And look, if she could do it, you can too. Okay, let's, uh, I tell you what, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm just, I'm introducing Rebecca. Now, I told you there it is, we have to explain the gospel, I just talked about that. Attention, attraction, demonstration, how do you know it's true? Explanation. Rebecca's going to come up, Rebecca McLaughlin now, and she's going to talk to you about well, how can Christians be confident to talk about the truth of their faith. Rebecca, please. Thanks, Tim. Tim mentioned earlier that the gospel rids us of pessimism. And that is good news for me, because you're about to hear like 35 minutes of pure, unadulterated, very un-British optimism. <laughs> but because I'm British, we're going to start with Harry Potter. And if you have not read the Harry Potter books, you need to block your ears for about 90 seconds now, because this is the most terrible spoiler, and I would hate to ruin this beautiful story for you. But in Harry Potter and a Half-Blood Prince, 
J.K. Rowling sticks a knife into her readers' hearts. Professor Dumbledore is the Gandalf of the series, the only man whose power for good can match Lord Voldemort's evil. But in the sixth book, a weakened Dumbledore stands at the top of the astronomy tower, surrounded by his enemies, and he appeals to Harry's teacher nemesis, Severus Snape, for help. Severus, please. And Snape kills him. The scene is devastating. We never liked Professor Snape, but we hoped beyond hope that he was Dumbledore's man, and now his betrayal of his mentor is complete. It's only in the last book that we realize how wrong we were. When Harry extracts memories from the dying snake's mind and pours them into the magical pensieve where you can dive into somebody else's past. And then we see that everything Snape has done has been driven by his passionate, hopeless, unrequited love for Harry's mother. We see Snape's anguish as Lily Potter is murdered by Voldemort and how he thenceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. We hear Dumbledore telling Snape that he is dying from the slow workings of an irreversible curse and makes Snape promise to kill him when the moment comes. And suddenly the meaning of Severus, please, is reversed. When our non-Christian friends look over at the Christian faith, they see an awful lot of things that look like Snape killing Dumbledore. They see a white center religion with a history of racism and scriptures that condone slavery. They see an anti-intellectual mindset and a contradictory Bible that's been disproved by science again and again. They see homophobia, the denigration of women, and a refusal to acknowledge that love is love. In this cultural moment, it's tempting for us to think that the sands are running out of Christianity. But the best thing we can do is batten down the hatches and cling on for dear life while the waves of secularization wash over us. But if that's what we think, I believe we've got it all wrong. The sands aren't running out of Christianity, they're running in. But just as our understanding of Severus, please, flips when we hear Snape's whole story, when we look more closely at each of these devastating roadblocks, they become signposts to Christ. I believe we have an opportunity before us right here, right now. But there are four things that we need to do in order to grasp this opportunity. We must reclaim diversity. We must reclaim the university. We must reclaim morality and we must reclaim sexuality. But we must do all these things with humility and not by watering the scriptures down, but by lapping them up. So first, we must reclaim diversity. On February 23rd of this year, Nigerian street preacher Oluwole Ilesami stood outside a train station in London, preaching to the commuters as they went by. Two white British police officers came up to him and gave him a choice, go away or be arrested. I will not go away, Mr. Lasagna replied, because I need to tell them the truth, and Jesus is the only way of the truth and the life. Nobody wants to listen to that, said one of the British police officers. They want you to go away. 
You don't want to listen to that, Mr. Elisami replied. You will listen when you are dead. You will listen when you are dead. And so he was arrested. What do we make of this? Are we encouraged by our brother's faith? I certainly am. Are we reminded that preaching the gospel always comes at a cost? And that we Western Christians have got far too used to a comfortable life? For sure. But a black African Christian preaching the exclusive message of Jesus while white Westerners stop their ears is a little parable for the religious world today. Forty years ago, sociologists thought that the tide was going out of religion. As the world became more educated, more scientific, more modern, religious belief would naturally decline. In the last 40 years, not only have we not seen religion declining, but sociologists are now looking forward for the next 40 years and anticipating increasingly religious wealth. So today, 31% of the world identifies as Christian, and that portion is set to grow slightly by 2060 to 32%. Islam is expected to shoot up from about 25% to 31%, making a very close comparison with Christianity. Hinduism and Buddhism are both expected to decline slightly. And the proportion of people who do not identify with any religious tradition, including atheists, agnostics, and nuns, is set to decline from 16% to 13%. The tide isn't going out in religion, it's coming in. This is surprising to our non-Christian friends. But perhaps what's even more surprising is that Christianity is the worldview of diversity. The first century Jewish man we worship broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day, and he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and they began at once. We meet the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8. And Ethiopia actually went on to become the second officially Christian state in the world. Before St. Patrick ever went to Ireland, and a thousand years before the gospel came to America. Today, China is the global center of atheism. But experts believe that by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than in America, and that by 2060, China could be a majority Christian country. At that point, 40% of the world's Christians are expected to be living in sub-Saharan Africa. So what about in America? Black Americans are at least 10% more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers, and they pull higher on every marker of evangelical commitment, from regular church going, to Bible reading, to core evangelical beliefs. Latina and Latino Americans are also more likely to identify as Christians. And immigrants of color are planting evangelical churches across this great nation. So I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in Somerville, the adjacent city, English is the third most commonly spoken language in evangelical churches after Portuguese and Creole. Some white Americans think that immigration is eroding America's Christian heritage. In fact, immigration is a much needed blood transfusion for the American church. 
Now this flips the paradigm for our non-Christian friends. When my friends hear evangelism, they envisage white Westerners forcing their beliefs down on people's throats. But when they realize that most Christians are not white Westerners, and increasingly most evangelists are not white Westerners either, the exclusive truth claims of Christianity can no longer be dismissed. When Mr. Elisani said that Jesus was the only way, the truth, and the life, he was not saying, my culture's cooking is better than yours, but I was starving too till I found bread. So let's reclaim diversity. Because Christianity is the most multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of history. Second, we must reclaim the university. In 2015, I took a good friend of mine who is an atheist Jewish science professor at Harvard to an event at Harvard in which an anti-right New Testament scholar was in dialogue with the agnostic chair of the Harvard philosophy department. The title of the event was The Bible, Gospel, Guide, or Garbage. And after the event, I said to my friend, um, I said, I know that you think that what I believe is crazy. His then girlfriend, who was a much gentler soul than either of us, said, Oh, I'm sure he doesn't think that. <laughs> I said, Yes, he does. I believe the entirety of human history revolves around a first century Jewish man who had died on the cross and was supposedly raised from the dead three days later. Crazy, right? My friend said, Yes. I said, The problem is, I think that you believe some crazy things as well. See, our non-Christian friends think that they are choosing between Christianity with all its crazy beliefs and a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work for them that Christianity does for us without them having to believe in crazy things. My friends, there is no such belief system. For decades now, the idea that the world is becoming less religious and the religion is dying out has functioned in the university not just as a diagnosis, but as a prescription. It's not just what will happen, but what should happen. So what is going to happen when Western intellectuals realize that it hasn't happened? But the question for the next generation is not how soon will religion die out, but Christianity or Islam. And that atheism, far from being the belief system of diversity and progress, is the belief system of white Western men and communist regimes. Fang Yang is a leading sociologist of religion in China. And he says that the university is going to have to go through a paradigm shift, much like a scientific revolution, when the failure of the secularization hypothesis comes home to roost. In other words, between now and when my kids are in college, there's going to be an earthquake in the university. This should excite us, uh -huh. but it shouldn't surprise us. Because Christians invented the university, and universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge were founded explicitly to bring glory to God. Christians have written some of the greatest literature of all time. Christians have dreamt up some of the greatest philosophy of all time. 
And perhaps most surprisingly to our non-Christian friends, and honestly to us as Christians as well, Christians literally invented the modern scientific method, not as an alternative to belief in a creator God, but because they believed in a creator God who was both rational and free. A few years ago, I met a Princeton professor named Hans Harmerson. He's an extraordinary guy. He's one of the top four philosophers of science in the world. And Hans says that not only is it historically the case that Christians literally invented modern science, but that even today, science rests more securely on theistic foundations than atheistic ones. In fact, he says that atheism does not provide a philosophical grounding for science at all. Other complex theological questions raise my modern science, for sure. But Christians have always been leaders in science, and Christians have always been on both sides of every supposedly science versus Christianity debate. So let's not concede science to atheism. Instead, the thousands of Christian professors whom God has raised up in universities in fields from philosophy to physics to psychology to history, and let's learn from them. Let's reclaim the university in this next generation not as a hostile takeover, but as a homecoming. Because Christianity isn't anti-intellectual. It's the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. Third, we must reclaim morality. Earlier this year, I reviewed this excellent book. Uh, it's called Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Cannot Deliver. It's by Notre Dame professor Christian Smith, and it's a serious academic work published by Oxford University Press. And in it, Smith evaluates whether today's intellectual atheists are giving us convincing reasons for their high moral beliefs. For example, their beliefs in universal human rights and justice, or their belief that people starving in the slums in Calcutta can make any moral demands on us here now. And this is Smith's conclusion. Atheists, it seems to me, are perfectly entitled to believe in and act to promote universal benevolence and human rights, but only as an arbitrary, subjective, personal preference, not as a rational, compelling, universally binding fact or obligation. This news is deeply disturbing to our non-Christian friends. My friends believe in human rights and human equality and care for the poor and racial justice and the equality of men and women. The question is, do they have any basis on the grounds of their atheism for these beliefs? And the answer is no. This realisation dawned slowly for one of the few people who knew both me and my husband Brian before we knew each other. So our friend Sarah Irving Stonebrecher is a history professor in Australia. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Cambridge to do her PhD. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Oxford to do her postdoc. But while she was at Oxford, she went to a series of lectures by fellow Australian Princeton philosophy professor Peter Singer. Now Singer is a very smart man, and he's one of the, the few atheists who, who stares very frankly in the face the fact that if we get rid of Christianity, we can no longer trade on Christian ethics. 
And he says that, that rather than agree that all humans are equally valuable because they are human, that we need to evaluate beings, human or otherwise, on the basis of their capacities. For example, the capacity for self-awareness, the capacity to suffer, etc. By Singer's calculation, a newborn infant is less morally valuable than an adult cow. As my friend Sarah listened to these lectures, she experienced what she later described as a kind of intellectual vertigo, when she realized that her atheism cut against all of her deepest beliefs. She thought that Christianity was the enemy of human rights and racial justice and equality for men and women. But she gradually discovered it was the basis for those things, and so she gave her life to Christ. As we talk with our non-Christian friends, we must never imply that we think that we are better than they are. I believe that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And we must be very real about the massive, horrendous moral mistakes that Christians have made over the last 2,000 years, including we ourselves. And yet, rather than buying into the new atheist narrative that religion poisons everything, if we actually look at the data, even in America today, we find an interesting story. People who go to church once a week or more give 3.5 times as much to charity as their secular peers. They volunteer twice as much. They are half as likely to engage in domestic violence. And they're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. <laughs> Christianity is the greatest movement for justice in all of history. So in this hurting world, let's reclaim morality, like divers pulling treasure from a wreck, and let's flee self-righteousness like toxic waste. Fourth, we must reclaim sexuality. When Snake killed Dumbledore, all doubt in the reader's mind as to whether he was on the side of good or evil died as well. And when we stand for Christian sexual ethics, we move over in our friends' minds from delusion to bigotry. Opposition to gay marriage for Christians is equivalent in my friends' minds to opposition to mixed race marriage. It's morally repugnant and it puts us on the wrong side of history. So how can we turn this devastating roadblock into a signpost to Christ? When Harry dived into Snape's memories, he found not a story of hate, but a story of love. And when we dive into what the scriptures have to say to us about sexuality, we find that it's a love story too. This love song begins in the Old Testament as prophet after prophet compares God to a loving, faithful husband and Israel to his often unfaithful wife. It takes a step forward when Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and declares himself to be the bridegroom. <coughs> it comes into clear focus in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul talks about human marriage as a little scale model of Jesus' love for the church. 
and it rises to a full-blown crescendo in the book of Revelation, where the voice of a great multitude declares that the wedding of the Lamb has come, and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. This is why marriage is male and female, and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it is a flesh-uniting, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. But it is also meant to disappoint us. Because even the best human marriage could only give us a tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. And let's not forget, Christian marriage was countercultural from the first. In the Greco-Roman world, no men expected to be faithful to their wives, let alone to pour themselves out in sacrificial love for them. It was fine for them to sleep with other women, and often with other men as well. No wonder Christianity drew more women than men in the first instance. No wonder the church has always been majority female. Far from being the epicenter of misogyny, Christianity is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. So here's the irony. The sexual revolution in the 1960s was sold to us as the liberation of women. For centuries, men have been finding ways to sneak around Christian marriage and have commitment-free sex, and now great new standards of the pill women could as well. But in the past 60 years, despite growth in freedom and opportunity, women's self-reported happiness in America has actually declined. Why is that? I believe that part of the reason is that commitment-free sex is a poison chalice. For both men and for women, stable marriage correlates with multiple mental and physical health benefits. <laughs> but for women in particular, increasing our numbers of sexual partners is actually correlated with negative mental health outcomes, including greater suicidal ideation, increased sadness, increased depression, increased substance abuse. Interestingly, a Dartmouth professor, who's not a Christian at all, did a study of sex and happiness and he concluded that the happiness-maximizing number of sexual partners in the last year is, guess what? One. So let's not lose confidence in Christian marriage. But marriage is not the only relationship that is designed to point us to Jesus' love for us. Greater love has no one in this, said Jesus, that he laid down his life for his friends. People sometimes say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. I disagree. I think the Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that we Christians seldom reach. Paul calls us one body, knit together in love, comrades in arms. He calls his friend Anisimus his very heart, and he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. None of this is sexual. All of this is ours in Christ. 
And if we are going to reclaim sexuality in the next generation, we need to reclaim fierce, abiding, non-erotic, non-romantic love. I'm not saying any of this is easy or straightforward. I myself have been romantically attracted to women since childhood. If I were not a Christian, it's, it's very probable I would have been married to a woman instead of married to a man today. I'm happily married to a man, have been for 12 years. And actually, I, I'm, not kind of, I'm not actually as weird as I might sound from that. I, mean, I, I am weird, but for other reasons. Um, <laughs> it turns out I'm the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person. A woman who is attracted to other women, but not exclusively so. So it turns out about 14% of women experience same-sex attraction, but only 1% are exclusively attracted to other women. Uh. For men, it's about 7% who experience same-sex attraction, and only 2% who are exclusively attracted to other men. And interestingly as well, people's sexual orientation can and does change over the course of their lifetime. Not, not always, but it certainly is, is not an infrequent occurrence. And this research has been pioneered by a woman named Lisa Diamond, who's a, a professor at the University of Utah, and she's herself a lesbian activist. And one of the things she concludes is that when we categorize people as gay or straight, we're not in fact cutting nature of its joints. We're imposing some joints on a very messy phenomenon. We need to recognize and reckon as churches with the fact that we have not typically served our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters well. We have let our brothers and sisters shiver in the dark, believing that they are weird and unwanted and unloved. And if you want to pour paraffin on sexual temptation, what do you do? You leave someone alone. But if we want to reclaim sexuality in the next generation, we need to make our churches places where same-sex attracted Christians are included and embraced. Our brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction are not an embarrassment. They're an asset. People today are blocking their ears to the gospel because they think we're homophobic bigots. Our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, especially those who remain single because of their devotion to Christ, are our God-given SWAT team to burst through those defenses. Because there is no more powerful way to testify to Jesus in this culture. There is no more powerful way to point to the beauty of Jesus than to turn away from your own romantic and sexual fulfillment because you believe in a better love. So as we go out into our communities with the message of the gospel, we must reclaim diversity, we must reclaim the university, we must reclaim morality, we must reclaim sexuality, and we must do all of these things with humility. We must repent of the ways that we have allowed racism to thrive in our churches. We must repent of the ways in which we have abandoned the light of the mind. And we must repent of the actual homophobia that has infected our churches for years. We need to take a hard turn toward the scriptures and a hard turn away from ourselves. Because Jesus is not a relic of the ancient world. He is our modern world's best hope.
going to start our second Q&A, and Rebecca, I will be um, directing the questions to you, but of course, Tim, please uh, chime in if you have something to ask me <laughs> Okay, um, what are some ways you've shared the gospel with the LGBTQ community that have been helpful? A lot of questions are coming in about this topic. Yeah, I'll share with some folks earlier today. Um, I was actually visiting a church in Columbia, Missouri a couple of weeks ago, and for various reasons, the LGBT community in that city was really up in arms about becoming. Um, so I started off by using the best weapon we Christians have against our enemies, which is love, um, and inviting folk to have coffee with me and, and have an open conversation. Um, I think one of the ways in is to actually take a big step uh, back or deeper uh, theologically. And so I, I think often we act like uh, God found, or we're claiming that God found uh, sexuality sort of lying around one day and decided to regulate it, because he wanted to sort of make rules about these things. In, in fact, we believe in a creator God who made male and female and sex and marriage in the first place in order to tell us about Jesus' love for us. People typically haven't heard that, although I think it's profoundly biblically true. And so it just sort of shifts the, the territory of the conversation. I think another way in is to connect up um, some of the things I was saying sort of earlier in that presentation with some of the things at the end and say, the kind of moral outrage that folks in the LGBT community feel about Christian sexual ethics depends on there being actual right and wrong. And atheism doesn't give you a grounding for saying that. So then that, that's a place that we can touch. I think there's also territory to be touched on where uh, LGBT um, folk are very concerned, rightly, about those on the margins and those who are maybe being um, you know, marginalized by society. Why do we care about people on the margins? because Jesus told us to? Why do we care about racial diversity? Because Jesus told us to. There are all sorts of ways in which actually even the, the moral values on which Christianity is currently being critiqued are ones that Jesus has, has given us. So I think going back to those questions and issues. And I think the third, honestly, is finding um, those within our midst who have the credibility to speak on, the, on these questions. Um, so friends who have um, been really made some big sacrifices because of their faith in Jesus on these issues, and who can't be dismissed as homophobic bigots because this is their lived experience, not something they're sort of theorizing about. So I think, yeah, I mean, point folks to articles or books by um, folks in those categories, or, or find your friends at church who can speak from experience and introduce you to them. So, Rebecca, you shared uh, about some of your rich experiences with friends in university, and um, Tim, we know you've spoken on many college campuses. So what is your advice for Christians hoping to share their faith on college campuses in which there is a tolerance climate, yet intolerance for Christians? To Rebecca. I think there is massive open space in the university. I mean, sorry, to frame this all, I'm like wildly optimistic. It's temperamentally who I am. But I'm also just like, 
quite optimistic about the future of, of the church um, if, we, if we sort of get to work on some of these things. I've noticed that in, in I spent nine years um, in a parachurch organization um, working with Christian professors, helping them to articulate their faith in various contexts. And one of the things that's really interesting is that if you look at where the research is actually at, uh, in terms of questions about like tolerance and evangelism actually, like whether it's legitimate to share your beliefs with somebody else, even if they are highly unpopular, and to make a case, a like try to persuade somebody to change their beliefs, that is something that universities should be all about. And there are plenty of very high up non-Christian thinkers who will say, yes, that is what universities should be all about. Now, if you then go and talk to student leaders or uh, some of the administrative folks kind of trying to regulate the mess of student life, they'll often be like, oh no, evangelism completely not allowed on this campus. That does not stand up in court. It, like actually intellectually, that does not stand up in court in the university. So I think we kind of lovingly and gently need to fight some of these battles uh, and bring some of the best non-Christian thinkers to bear on these questions. Practically speaking, the biggest problem with uh, uh, talking to college students about uh, faith is how busy they are. And also, it's impossible to give them something else to read when they, they're already feeling guilty about the fact that they're essentially lying through their teeth to everybody about how many books they're not getting read in Oh, And uh, I actually think, I'm being really practical, but my, my, from what I can tell, it's just so hard for the students all feel very uh, pressed, they feel behind, um, but they are isolated and, and really, really lonely, mm -hmm. very. And so I would say the just uh, inhabiting a relationship with them and developing it and uh, is more important even with college students. Mm -hmm. You might think, well, they're college students, so they need more apologetics, they need more. Well, they will eventually, but probably in the very beginning, uh, it's the relational has to take priority because <clears throat> you can't snow them with lots of information. They actually don't have the, they don't have any room for it. Mm -hmm. they're, they're taking so much in. But on the other hand, the optimism, I share the optimism. It's the one time in your life when you really actually, college students think they're busier than they are, first of all. <laughs> they, have, they actually have, don't have jobs yet, and they have no idea. <laughs> and it's the one time in your life in which it's your job in a way to think about new ideas. Mm, exactly. So there actually is, there is room and a place for it. So yeah, I'd be optimistic too, even though, <clears throat> um, it has to be relational. And a lot of things that Rebecca said, Rebecca just, just, it was just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of ways to talk to people rationally and intellectually about the faith. But you do have to learn those if you're going to work with college students because they're going to throw you the objections. Yeah, yeah. And just to build on that a second, we talked a bit about this earlier. College students are big into life hacks, right? Like they want to know what's going to make you happy, what's going to make life good. There is a lot of empirical data coming out of Harvard University showing that one of the things that makes you happy is going to church every week. Like literally, happier, healthier, longer lived. Uh, the things that Christians do, funnily enough, turn out to be quite well aligned with human flourishing. So maybe we can like, let people know that. People who go to church every week are five times less likely to kill themselves than people who don't. And we talk about suicide prevention on campuses. Like, if everybody went to church every week, or synagogue, 
but not the golf club. It's got to be church or synagogue every week. We could reduce suicide rates dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you, Rebecca, for saying the truth um, fiercely, honestly, and firmly. Um, the question here is, what are some ways church can support our brothers and sisters who have same-sex or bisexual attraction? Mm -hmm. Great question. So number one, and I think, my guess is that all the redeeming congregations are well up on this, for which I'm very thankful. I think number one is rather than assuming that everybody in the room is straightforwardly straight, assume that that is not the case. Uh, if it is true, which uh, you know, the, the research seems to suggest that say 14% of women experience same-sex attraction and you have 100 people in the room, then if half of them are women, I'm doing amazing maths here in my head, <laughs> seven of those women experience same-sex attraction. So I think firstly we need to say, okay, this is something that um, is part of my community's experience, even if it's not part of my view experience. I think second we need to say, we're kind of all in the same boat. I mean, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but imagine if I said, raise your hand if you have ever been attracted to someone you're not married to. And my guess is pretty much all of us, whether we're single or married, will be able to say, yes, I have sometimes been attracted to somebody I'm not married to. And to some extent, whether that is to a man or a woman is like kind of beside the point. The question is, will we submit our attractions to Christ? So I think if we recognize we're all kind of in the same boat, and we don't create Christian culture where it's easier to confess a pornography addiction than same-sex attraction, which sadly in a lot of churches is, is a reality that much easier to talk about your porn addiction than about your um, desire for other men, for example. Um, and, and we're kind of all in this together, recognizing, you know what, we're a bunch of messed up folks in all sorts of ways. Um, and I think we need to live into the biblical ideals of Christian community, which, as I said, are embarrassingly intimate. I mean, imagine, imagine if Tim talked about being among you guys like a breastfeeding mother. You'd be like, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, breastfeeding, that's a very like, intimate thing. That's how Paul describes being with his people. I think we need to, to lean into that and recognize how much love we need to have. Um, I'm going to tack on a tiny anecdote to that because uh, I met with a gender non-conforming lesbian couple a couple of weeks ago and we had a like, hard conversation that ended up better. And subsequently, one of the women said to me, um, I feel genuinely sad for you that you will never experience love and passion with another woman. And I said this, it was a tweet, I sent this tweet to one of my best friends. And she texted back, she said, she's wrong about the love. I said, yeah, I know she's wrong about the love. I didn't feel sad for me at all. I think I probably have far more love from my close female friends than the average woman in a lesbian relationship, quite frankly. We need to do all the love stuff that the Bible calls us to do. Deeply on race, science, and homosexuality. 
So how would you suggest our Redeemer churches practically teach and disciple in these areas in the future? Yeah, I should, I should, you should not make Rebecca talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways I shouldn't either. I'm not the pastor of the church. But, but the, uh, uh, I do, th I sort of make, well, no, okay. I, I, I actually think that that we do not connect doctrine to cultural issues. So for example, uh, when you talk about uh, creation, and when you talk about uh, how God created the world, when you talk about sin, and how human beings fell from, uh, and we would call it the fall, when you go through uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you can, you can teach it in an abstract way. The Bible says this, this, this and not connected to the cultural issues of the time. The, the fact of the, of the matter is you can't really, you shouldn't really talk about Genesis 1 and not talk about gender. Uh, because the, the very second that God created human beings, he created them in male and female. In other words, gender comes in uh, immediately. So uh, the, the I, of course, um, the, the all the issues that you just mentioned actually have to be ordinarily talked about, not only in the preaching, but also in the way in which we teach and train. I would say, in general, uh, Christian instruction, uh, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, just ignores those issues as if they were political or something, they're actually not. So uh, you actually have to incorporate what, what the culture says about race and about power. Um, and about history, and about gender, and about sexuality, they actually ought to be in our ordinary way of, it shouldn't be a special, like, okay, we're gonna talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and then we're gonna talk about race, sex, power. They should be incorporated, they should be, they should be part and parcel. I have to admit that we don't have, we're gonna to have to produce a lot of that ourselves, because there aren't publishing houses and places and books you can go to to talk about that. But uh, no, I do think, listen, I started Redeemer and I was on top of it for most of its life. And so any failure there is, to some degree, a sin of omission on my part as a leader. And I think, I think there's a sense in which we've relied too much on traditional uh, materials and things that have been written in the past that actually don't connect doctrine to cultural issues. We should. I'm not commenting on Redeemer specifically, partly because I massively admire Redeemer and I don't, I'm not close enough to know any of the bad things, so, you know, I don't know the good things. Um, I think the scriptures give us incredible riches on all of these questions if we pay attention to them. And, for example, on questions of gender, it's easy for us to conflate biblical views of gender with traditional gender roles. It was funny, I was reading a book uh, recently by um, a, a transgender activist, and he was talking about uh, a guy coming home from work as a manual laborer and cooking a meal for his family and saying he's switching gender expressions there because cooking is a female gender expression. What was one of the first things that Jesus did after the resurrection? He cooked for his friends, right? Like he baked the fish. Typically, we don't have any mandate or need to say, well, cooking is a female gender expression. Like, if it's good enough for Jesus, the ultimate man, it's good enough for every man in this room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it comes to race. I mean, 
emphatically anti-racist document in all of history, as far as I can see. And I, I think sometimes we, we lose sight of quite how uh, aggressively anti-racist the New Testament is, because our racial barriers are different from those of the time. So, so we hear Samaritan, and we immediately think, oh, the good Samaritan, like, Samaritan gives us all the feels in a positive way when we hear that word. Like at the time, the Samaritans were like a hated racial and ethnic and religious group for the Jews. So the idea of a good Samaritan was like profoundly paradoxical. Um, Abraham was called out of Iraq. Like modern day Iraq is where he was coming from. All these ways in which, because we don't actually translate the Bible into our own sort of language and cultural terms, we don't see how aggressively anti-racist it is, but it really is. So we're <laughs> okay. We're gonna get back to gender. Um, how would you, Rebecca, approach a friend who believes they can choose their own gender, male, female, or whatever else they prefer? I am just starting to get very interested in transgender thinking. Um, so I say that to say, any words out of my mouth are like shooting from the hip rather than my actual proper considered thoughts, so I probably shouldn't say anything. It's fascinating to me to see how different strands within the transgender movement are moving. So there are some folks who are saying, uh, I, you know, for example, I could be fully anatomically female, and yet in some like objective sense, male. So not just that I prefer a male gender expression, but that I, despite my sort of full anatomical femaleness, am in fact objectively male. Some folks are saying, I may have the primary and secondary sexual characteristics of a female, but actually in, in a scientific way, my brain is masculine, and that there's something sort of happened in, in utero where there was a kind of, uh, misfiring or complication that meant that in fact I have a male brain, which is very interesting conceptually if we think about the sort of history of feminism, we've spent a long time um, saying that actually men and women are fundamentally the same, albeit anatomically different. And within the transgender movement, there's one thread which is saying, as you know, there's a, there's a male brain and a female brain in some sense. And then there's this third move. Um, I've recently been reading um, a transgender woman um, named Andrea Chu on these questions. A third sort of strain arguing that it, it's not about a biological reality, it's not about who, who I innately am, it's about what I want. And so there's all sorts of ideological conflict actually within the transgender movement, and there's all sorts of ideological conflict between transgender folks and traditional feminists. And there's actually also some significant conflicts sort of ideologically between some transgender folks and some sort of traditional gay and lesbian folks, because the conversation's going in all which ways. So I think talking to a specific individual, I would want to hear what do they mean when they say they questions, listen and learn from their experience. Recognize that for some people this is a very 
deep part of their human experience, and, and it's sometimes easy for those of us who don't, I mean, I've never experienced gender dysphoria myself, it's sometimes easier for those of us who haven't to be kind of dismissive. I think it's a very unchristian approach. Um, and I think, finally, I'll shut up in a second, we need to recognize that some folks are born intersex. I have a friend with, with two little kids in this category where they're born with, um, you know, chromosomally male, but with um, majority sort of female biological manifestation, at least as, as babies and small children. So we need to recognize there is complexity there, but at the same time that the Bible gives us um, you know, real categories of male and female that are, are theological categories um, and not just sort of constrained by um, cultural even um, our sort of biological ideas. Okay, we have time for one last question. Um, given that this uh, event is about missional living, is it possible that not all Christians are meant to evangelize? No. <laughs> not all Christians are equally gifted at anything um, that we're commanded to do. Some people are, uh, but we, in other words, they, uh, the Bible says we're all supposed to be ambassadors. It, uh, there's a famous place in Acts chapter eight where after uh, Paul, um, I mean, after Stephen was uh, stoned to death, he was executed, there was a persecution in Jerusalem, and it says, all the Christians except the apostles left Jerusalem, and they preached the gospel wherever they were, meaning that the only people that stayed behind were the apostles. Every other Christian, it says it in Acts chapter 8, verse like 4 or so, it says every other Christian was preaching the gospel. That can't mean that they were all pub doing public speaking. Um, but it, uh, we're all supposed to counsel each other, even though we may not have the gift of counsel. We're all supposed to evangelize, even though we may not have the gift of counsel. Uh, we're all supposed to uh, do mercy, uh, you know, take care of people's physical and, and, uh, needs, but uh, not some people have the gift of it. So there's the gift and the role. Not everybody has the gift, meaning you may not specialize in it, it may not be one of the main things you do, but, but the role is a command, and therefore, yeah, all Christians should be sharing their faith. Okay. That's all the time we have for questions. Thank you so much for everyone who sent questions in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.